So today, as we, we're going to finish, I know we're moving right along here, but we're going to finish our little mini-series and character study on Noah. And as we've said, you know, character studies can do a lot for us. One of the things they do is they allow us to understand that, you know, biblical characters, uh, even though they've done great things and they've had great failures, are a lot like us. They're a lot like you and I. In fact, not a lot like you and I, they're just like you and I. There are people uh, who decided to obey God or not, <laughs> and uh, they are just examples for us. And so the things that you go through in your life, whether they be victories or whether they be failures, whether they be uh, over, uh, overcoming <laughs> uh, or whether they be setbacks, know that you are not alone. You're not the only one. Amen. Who serves God and goes through those things. Amen. And so... We've been talking, we've been talking about Noah and how he was tasked to do something great, right? Not only great, but inexorable. And the reason I say that is because you read back in Genesis and you find that God was, if I could say this, at his wit's end. <laughs> in other words, the Bible says that God said he regretted that he made humans. And God said, you know what? I am wiping humans from the face of the earth. I regretted that I made man. All that's in his heart is evil all of his days from his youth. That's all he thinks about. That's all that's in his heart. And so I'm going to get rid of mankind from the face of the earth. Not only mankind, but every living thing. Animals, insects, fish had to pay the price for the evil of humans and the evil that was in our heart. God said, I'm wiping it all out. I'm destroying everything. I'm going to give you something you've never seen before. A flood. The firmament will break open. Water will come from heaven. Water will come from up under the earth. Things that you've never seen before. And it will destroy everything. And we were desperate and didn't know it. But Noah. But Noah. Noah was the only one that found grace and favor in the eyes of the Lord. We've been talking about Noah and how he is a type of Christ. And if, if, if you can't get a good comparison of Noah and Jesus, that right there ought to give you a great picture. Because there came a time when man was so evil that God said, there's no way, but I'll have to send my son. But Jesus, who shed his blood, as you said, for us on the cross. And so we look at Noah. He found favor in God's sight. But you know, one of the things we're going to read here in a few moments, the last thing that we read about Noah, it seems like many people often judge him by what amounts to a moment in time in his life. You know, when we read what we're about to read about Noah, it could be said, well, Noah was a drunkard. After everything he went through, Noah was just a drunk. And we judge Noah that way. But should Noah really be judged 
by being a drunkard. I mean, let's recap what we know about Noah. In the midst of an evil world, God called out to Noah. He gave him specific instructions. And Noah, he built the ark exactly as he was instructed to build it. The Lord invited Noah and his whole family to come into the ark. And we know from Hebrews 11:7 that it was because of Noah's faith that his whole family was saved. He goes down in what some call the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. They were all preserved. God said, come. He invited him. We know that Jesus later said that no one comes to the Lord except the Father draws them. And so Noah found such favor in the eyes of the Lord that he was drawn by the Father to save the world. Noah was obedient. He was obedient. And we find that when they got in the ark, the rain came and it rained 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, 150 days later, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And 56 days after that, the water receded and the land dried up. They weren't just in the boat for a weekend. This wasn't six days, seven night cruise through the Caribbean. Come on. And the water finally dried up and the Lord told Noah, you and your family go out of the ark, you and your whole family, and bring all of the animals with you. Noah was obedient to God and Hebrew says that he was a man of faith. And so though Noah was not a perfect man, we know because Paul said, all have sinned and come short of God's glory. So we know that he fell short. But he did find favor in God's sight. And I think we have to be careful how we judge people. Because we see a moment in time. We see a failure. We see a mistake or two. We see someone trip up or say something they shouldn't have said or do something they shouldn't have done. And we judge their whole life by the mistake that they made. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever fallen short in life and you feel like people are judging you because of this one mistake, but you know in your heart it was a mistake and you're not really that way. When we really should be judging people by their character instead of their mistakes. Come on. Especially when we have a small sampling of who they are. Sometimes we really don't even know people and we judge them. We're all guilty of it at one time or another. And if we learn anything from a biblical character study, it's that people must not be judged by a few mistakes uh, that they make, no matter the enormity, but if they are judged at all, it, they should be judged by their character, which is often not revealed except in the crucible of adversity. How is your character? How is your character? The last time you went through adversity, what did it reveal about you? Not the last time you were on the mountaintop. Not the last time you had $100 in your pocket and somebody needed 10 and you gave it to them. Not the last time that you did something great. I'm talking about when you were going through adversity. What did it reveal about you? Don't answer that. <laughs> 
And here we find Noah and his family after the flood waters receded. And they come down out of the ark, bringing all of the animals with them. And the first thing, first thing that Noah does is he builds an altar. He builds an altar to God. Uh, then Noah made offerings to the Lord. So it's obvious that there weren't just two of every animal. Otherwise, something's getting killed off. <laughs> we went over that. There's seven pairs of every clean animal. So he made offerings. And the Bible says that the Lord appreciated the offerings that Noah made. Why? Because the Bible says that God smelt a sweet-smelling savor from the offerings that Noah gave. Not because of what type of animals they were or not because of how he was doing it, but because of his heart that he was thankful. That's what smelled so sweet to God. And so God then promises, as we just saw, never to destroy the earth again in that way. Even though every inclination of our heart is evil from our youth. He goes on to say that as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest. And so when you look at all of this about Noah, it's hard to judge him only based on what we read here in Genesis chapter 9. So if you have your Bible or you have a way to get to Scripture, we're going to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to read quite a bit of Genesis chapter 9, starting right at verse 1. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. You may have a different version, but we'll get to the same place together. Amen. So the Bible in Genesis chapter 9, we're talking about after the flood, after the waters have receded, after the ark came to rest, after God told Noah to get out of the ark, after he came down and built an altar, verse 1 says, So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even the green herbs. Now, if this, these first three verses sound a bit familiar, they absolutely should. Because if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, you'll find that as God was making mankind, he said of humans, let them have what? Dominion over fish, Birds, cattle, every creeping thing on the earth. And then here in Genesis 9, after man's resurrection, if you will, or rebirth, if you will, coming down out of the ark, it's a metaphor, he says, the fear and the dread of you shall be on every beast, bird, creeping thing, and fish. That just means you are to have dominion over them. God always, always meant for mankind to have dominion over the earth. 
No matter what you see in Jurassic Park or some other movies or whatever they may say, Mother Earth does not rule us. We have dominion over the earth. Now that word dominion means literally to rule over. In other words, subdue, but also take care of. The Bible is clear that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so when God says you are to have dominion, you are to subdue it, he's talking to us as stewards, as landlords of this thing that he owns. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now I'm putting you over it, have dominion over it and take care of it. You're my representatives on the earth. Take care of it. Correct it when it needs correction. Fix it when it needs fixing. Love it when it needs loved. We're supposed to do all of those things. Mankind can be extremists. That's how we get into some arguments. And God said, I told you to do it all. Subdue it, have dominion. The fear of you will be on all the earth, but you're also to love it and take care of it. So you're to do both. Come on. And so we're the steward of the earth. In Genesis 1, right after God made Adam and Eve, what did he say? Be fruitful and multiply. Here in Genesis 9, he tells Noah and his sons and their wives, be fruitful and multiply. Here we go again. Now, one difference that we see in Genesis 9, God said, every moving thing, that lives shall be food for you. But back in Genesis 1, it would appear, it would appear that Adam and Eve may have been vegetarians because when you read that, he said, every herb and every fruit is food for you. He said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, back in verse 29 of chapter 1. Every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be food. And he said also to every beast of the earth, every bird of the air and everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. So at that point, he didn't say anything about eating each other or eating animals. But here he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So for the first time, animals can be food for us. Now, later on, we're not going to get into it, obviously, this morning, but later on in Leviticus, we find out that God talks about clean and unclean animals. Many of you know about that. There are certain things that he set aside and said, don't eat because it's not good for you. Some of us get sick and we want God to heal us, but we don't obey what he said. All right, that's another message. And then also, in Genesis 2, God makes Adam a man of the soil. A farmer. He said, I put man in the garden for him to till it and to take care of it. He's, he's a farmer. Well, in Genesis 9, Noah becomes a farmer. If you read on down through all of Genesis 9, which we're not going to read all of it today, you'll notice these words. It says, Noah became a farmer. Noah became a farmer. Noah became a farmer would indicate that he probably wasn't a farmer before, but now with this second chance, this new opportunity, this rebirth, this resurrection, he became a farmer, a man of the soil. And the first thing he did after he became a farmer 
was he built a vineyard. Drop down to verse 18, chapter 9. The Bible says, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Whole earth. And Noah began to be a farmer. He began to be a farmer. And he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away. They did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 and he died. So a couple of things to note here. As we look at Noah... And I used to think this about Noah too, that Noah was, was just a drunk. He just, maybe he just always been a drunk. He wasn't any different after the ark than he was before the ark. But when I read that it says Noah became a farmer and built a vineyard, and this is the first mention of wine, perhaps I misjudged Noah. Perhaps he didn't build a vineyard before the ark. Perhaps he wasn't a farmer. And perhaps he built a vineyard in order to produce wine. I'm not telling you to go home and just start drinking wine. But I'm talking about judging Noah. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about our judgments. That's what I'm getting at here. Noah did make a mistake. But you have to realize that oh, Noah was not an idle man. Before the flood, he built an ark, no easy task. He began building the ark when his sons were just born. After the flood, he became a farmer and built a vineyard. He turned a wilderness into a garden. That's what Noah did. And the vineyard was so that Noah could have wine to drink. So contrary to contemporary Christianity, it would appear that just having wine or drinking wine may not be the sin that we should be afraid of. After all, we know that Paul instructed Timothy to have a little wine for his sickness. The first miracle that Jesus ever performed was turning gallons of water into wine. Now, I know many of you are probably thinking, now, where's Pastor Mike going with this? He's telling us, you know, we should go drink wine. That's not what I'm telling you. We're getting to the point of how we judge people. That's what I'm talking about. 
<laughs> but Jesus wouldn't have turned water into wine and used a sin as an example unto us, would he? This miracle? So he obviously saw nothing wrong with drinking wine itself. No, the problem we find is excess, just like most other things. Most other things, anything we do in excess, come on, can be sin. Can be sin. The scriptures tell us that being drunk with wine is excess. But it never tells us that actually drinking wine is sin. I'm talking about, stay on task, because I'm talking about judging Noah, how we judge Noah. Oh, he just, as soon as he came down, he just started drinking wine. He just a drunk. 1 Corinthians 11, 21. Listen to Paul's words as he talks to the Corinthians. Consider this. He says, for in eating, each one of you takes his own supper ahead of the others. He's correcting the Corinthians. Each one of you takes his own supper ahead of the other person. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you, Paul says. Here's what Paul's saying. He said, look, I'm not telling you just to go home and get drunk. But if you're going to drink, go home and do it. Don't you have a house where you can eat in? Don't you have a house where you can drink in? If you're going to do those kind of things, go home and do it. Don't desecrate the house of God with your foolishness. Noah was at home. I'm not telling you it's okay to go home and drink wine. I'm just telling you what happened. Noah was at home. Paul told the Corinthians, don't you have a home you can go to? Now, we do look at one thing. Well, we understand that the problem now is not the wine, but the problem, watch this now, is the abuse of it. It's the abuse of it. Wine in Scripture is often portrayed as a blessing. But watch this. Anytime, what we find is that Noah, Noah was uncovered. Noah, Noah, it, it, was, it was to Noah's shame that he was uncovered. Wine was looked at as a blessing, but anytime you abuse the blessing of God, you become uncovered and you shame God. Anytime you abuse his blessing. See, when Noah gets drunk, he becomes uncovered. He becomes uncovered. He becomes exposed. And God, who is your covering, once you begin to abuse the blessings of God, your covering is removed and you become exposed. Here is the problem with Noah, is that he was laying there with the blessing of God, but uncovered and exposed. God never wants us to be uncovered and exposed, shaming him. So what we have to understand, first of all, 
is that God is our covering. And I think if we thought of it that way, if we understood that God is our covering, then we wouldn't be so quick to be exposed. We wouldn't be so quick to abuse the blessings of God. No, we would rather count them one by one. Psalm 32, 7, David said, you are my hiding place. You are my hiding place. You, God, the Lord, you will preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. He recognized that God is his covering. We all know Psalm 91, the first verse, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest, will abide, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. God is your covering. Down at verse 9 and 10, it says, If you say, the Lord is my refuge, if you say, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, look at the promise. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. Now, many of us would read that and say, well, I don't know about that. I don't know how true that is because disaster came to my tent and harm overtook me. Well, I know that let God be true and every man a liar. So you must not have said the Lord is my refuge and you must not have made the most high your dwelling. Let God be true. So we see here in Genesis 9, when Ham Ham saw his father naked. We want to judge Ham. We judge him. I have. What's wrong with this boy? Just going to go in there and look at your father. He's laying on the bed naked. You're just going to look at him and then run out and tell your brothers, is that what you're doing, Ham? What's going on with you? Well, we don't know. Maybe it was an, a mistake that Ham saw his father. Maybe he walked in and he had exciting news to tell his dad. Maybe his wife was pregnant. I don't know. And he ran in to tell his dad. And when he ran in, <gasps> his dad's laying there naked. And he didn't know what to do. So he ran outside, told his brothers. So I'm hesitant to judge Ham, but... What we do find out is that the problem was not the act of going in and seeing his father naked. The problem lied in the heart of Ham. Because whether he meant to or not, he went to his brothers and he pointed out his father's sin, thereby shaming him. Think about that. How often do we do that? Point out our brother's sin. Point out our sister's sin. Under the auspices of, I need to correct them because the Bible says. And we point it out and we shame them. How many of us who fall and make a mistake would love for somebody to come and say, look, you need not do that no more, but I'm going to tell you in private and I'm going to cover you. 
How many of us would appreciate a friend like that? God is your covering. That's what he does for us. And that's what he wants us to do for each other. Shem and Japheth immediately covered their father's shame. They refused to make it a spectacle. That's what God wants us to do for each other. They took in a blanket and they went in backwards. Don't look. Do not look. Look that way. And they laid it on their father so that he would not be shamed. I've said it time and time again. It's one of my favorite. I'm sure we all have favorite scriptures or favorite stories or some that we go back to. One of mine is the woman caught in adultery, not because she was caught in adultery, but because of what Jesus did. You see how God covers us, how they threw her down. Now, he didn't allow her sin to go without correcting her. That's what we forget sometimes. But he said, woman, where are your accusers? There are none, Lord. Then neither do I accuse you. You're covered. Now go and sin no more. So it's not that the correction shouldn't be there. Absolutely. Take your brother aside. Take your sister aside. Let's talk because I love you and I don't want to see you go through this and I don't want to see you make these mistakes. Not in front of everybody. Look what she did. We shame. We shame our brother and our sister and God is not pleased with that. He was not pleased with Ham. Proverbs 19.11 says this, a person's wisdom yields patience. Watch this. This is, this is in Proverbs. It's in the Bible. It says, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It is to your glory. What is the writer saying there? I believe that the Holy Spirit is telling us, he's not saying it's okay for someone else to sin and no one say anything, but he's saying that what we need to do is our heart has to be a heart of restoration and not a heart of condemnation. We have to search our own hearts. And I believe, and I'm saying this, and I know, I know we would all say amen to that. And we, I know we would all feel, oh, that's the way I am, uh, Pastor Mike. But you know what? I think Ham believed that's the way he was. But in a moment of adversity, what does your character reveal about you? Amen. And I'm not downing you because I'm looking. I say it all the time, Brother James, looking in the mirror. Looking in the mirror, knowing I have to get better, knowing I have to allow God to change my heart, to have great discernment, when to say something, when to be harsh, when to not be harsh. When, to, when other people would come and be harsh and say, how are you going to let that go, Pastor Mike? Maybe God is saying, no, not this time. You say, I love you and things will be all right. And another time, well, that doesn't seem like it's that bad, but God is saying, hey, that's going to lead to something very bad. So we need to stop that now. But it's God's discernment, not mine. And what we all want to do is we all want to feel like, well, we're wise in our own eyes. And when I see that every time, I'm going to react this way. Instead of aligning our hearts with God. Ham, I really believe, I don't know, but I really believe that his, he, he wasn't a bad person. He wasn't a bad son. He wasn't standing outside the tent just waiting for his father to make a mistake. I don't know. But there's no indication that, that that's what it was. He just, he, maybe he was surprised. Maybe you're surprised. 
How are you going to handle it? Similarly, God covered the shame of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. It's one of the first things that God did after man fell, after man sinned. God was walking through the garden looking for them. Was he looking for them to destroy them? Was he looking for them to even chastise them? No, first he was looking to cover them. Then we'll deal with the chastisement. Then we'll deal, okay, now you must leave the garden. Then we'll deal with the consequences. But first, cover. Cover. That's what God is telling us. Listen, within a family, within a family, and that's what we are, a family, we're aware of each other's weaknesses and the sins of others. But we need to cover private sins and weaknesses to those close to us. And then correct. Instead, many want to expose and disgrace others to their shame. This often speaks of our own insecurities sometimes. Because we know that we're not perfect people. So if I see that Dietra does something wrong, uh, you know, it makes me feel better. Because I know I'm not perfect. Well, haha. <laughs> You're not perfect either, Brother James. The good news for us is that it is God's desire to not only cover us, but it is his desire to restore us. That's the God that you serve. No matter how far you are, no matter what you've done, it is God's heart to restore you. That's why Jesus in Luke 15 told us the parables of the coin, the sheep, and the prodigal son. And his heart, the father's heart, is for restoration. And our heart should be that same way. Our heart should be that same way. Last scripture for you, First Peter. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. This is out of the Amplified. First Peter 5, 9 and 10. I'm going to leave you with this. Uh, Peter said this. He said, but resist him. Be firm in your faith. He said, resist him. He's talking about the devil. Right before this, he said, uh, Satan is like a roaring lion walking around, seeing whom he may destroy. You know that scripture. All right. And he says, but resist him. Be firm in your faith against his attacks. Rooted, established, immovable. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being, being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. What is he saying there when he talks about suffering? He's saying that you're a Christian and because you proclaim the name of Jesus, you're going to be chastised, you're going to be ostracized, you're going to be put out. But you're not the only one. Your brothers and sisters throughout the world are going through the same thing. He said you do not suffer alone. After you have suffered a while, the God of all grace, who imparts his blessing and favor, who called you to his own eternal glory in Christ, will himself complete, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, making you what you ought to be. And the God of all restoration is here today to restore you and I and he's here also to give you and I a heart of restoration. Amen.